1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do How they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Eric Zimmer About the twists and turns in his surprising career as a tech entrepreneur And about some of the things he's learned along the way you've got a cognitive budget. You've got a certain amount of energy that your brain has to do things. Here's Debbie Melman. In every creative life, there comes
0: a time when, well, we're not feeling particularly creative or inspired. Maybe our habits of mind or our bad habits lead us into an emotional, creative, and spiritual dead end. Eric Zimmer knows whereof I speak. At one especially low point... He was 50 pounds underweight and living in a van. Fast forward a few years, and Eric Zimmer is now the host of the super popular podcast, The One You Feed. The podcast intimately explores how to avoid depression, anxiety, and addiction with compassion, consciousness, and wisdom. On today's program, the podcast host of The One You Feed sits on the other side of the microphone. Welcome to Design Matters, Eric Zimmer.
1: Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me.
0: I read that for you, inspiration or feeling better when you're down comes from listening to loud music more than anything else. Why loud music and what do you listen to?
1: Well, depends what it is. Frank Turner is a good one. He's an English artist that I love. But there's something... Depression for me is largely, when it's there, is largely a lack of any energy. There's nothing there. It's, it's not a sadness. It's just a nothing. And just kind of listening to music is an invigorating sort of thing. So I find that sometimes that's the best therapy versus trying to think about something or, you know, work your way through it or whatever. Sometimes just putting on music and losing yourself in it is the best therapy, at least for me. Isn't it interesting how... Really
0: great music can change the DNA of our body or it sort of feels that the chemistry of our body.
1: Yeah, it really is. One of the things I've noticed is I've become a podcaster and listened to podcasts a lot more that sometimes I forget to listen to music. And if I don't, you know, because I'm so focused on that, if that happens over a little period of time. I start to notice like I'm a little off. Like I think music just has a, a particularly important role, at least for me.
0: You were born in Columbus, Ohio. And have lived there most of your life. It seems as if you've been an entrepreneur since you were a kid. You were a paper boy. You started a landscaping company with three friends and a pickup truck. You even started a nonprofit when you were 16 years old. What motivated all of your entrepreneurship?
1: Did you interview my mom? I'm I'm a little (laughs) bit amazed by that you figured some of this stuff out. Yeah, Mrs. Zimmer
0: and I are kind (laughs) of like, you know, eye to eye here.
1: I guess with hindsight, I can see that I like um, I like working. I think I spent a bunch of years trying to figure out how I could never work again. Like figure, and which was silly because I realized that's when I'm possibly at my most content. Um, I think I did the paper boy, like a lot of people do, to make money. Um, the landscaping thing I think was a similar thing, but that was the first experience of. Um, it was kind of, you know, me and my friend. It was our own little thing. You know, we had a truck. We drove around. We did these things. And then the tutoring program, the nonprofit tutoring program, sort of evolved from a very simple idea that what I wanted to do is take kids who lived in the inner city to the zoo.
0: I read that you felt that it was heartbreaking to realize when you saw these kids that They hadn't seen anything but the neighborhood they grew up in. Mm -hmm. And how would it be possible for them to envision a different future when they couldn't even see beyond their own neighborhood?
1: Yeah, that was really the, the original thought. I'd been doing some work in a soup kitchen, and I just saw these kids, and I thought, well, maybe if they see things besides what they're seeing, maybe they can have some inspiration. But nobody wants to turn a bunch of uh, elementary school kids over to a sixteen year old in his car to take him to the zoo. So that idea, quickly, in your truck, exactly. Right? <laughs> that that idea quickly died, and it became let's go to them and do a tutoring program, and then we start a scholarship fund for them.
0: I read that you have always wanted to make things and start things. What were you hoping to do professionally at that point in your life at sixteen?
1: I don't think I I knew then, and and probably have spent most of my life probably not knowing a good answer to that question. Early in high school, I was in a lot of trouble. Um, How come? Because I didn't want to go to school. Why? I didn't like it. I was bored. Whatever I was looking for or thought was important wasn't there. And then after my sophomore year, my guidance counselor said, we have an alternative program here in the in the district I'm in. It's, it's 150 people, and you can go try that alternative program if you like. Or I can expel you, but we're not going to have another year of, you know, me chasing you around trying to make you come to school.
0: What choice did you make?
1: I went to the alternative program grudgingly, and I hated it for about the first two weeks. And then it turned out to be one of the fundamental turning points in my life for sure that's where i started the tutoring program and did all that and the alternative program all it really did was say find what you're interested in and let's teach you what you need to know through that lens or that vehicle
0: when you were 18 you first moved out of columbus you lived in california you lived in new york city in connecticut where i think you were mostly playing music did you want to be a professional musician at that point
1: I did. But there was no reality to that vision at all. I I spent my years from 18 to 25. I mean, the only thing I really was, was a professional alcoholic and addict at that point. Yes, I think I wanted to be, but I wasn't doing anything that people who want to be successful at something were doing. I wasn't working incredibly hard at it. I wasn't incredibly dedicated. It was something to say, I think, that allowed me to somehow justify the life that I was living.
0: What Motivated you at that time in your life at such a young age to turn to drugs and alcohol for comfort.
1: I think, like a lot of alcoholics and addicts, there was no conscious choice there. When I was eighteen, I was in some personal pain, and somebody said, "Do you want here drink? Have a drink?" And I I took the drink, and it was like a it was like a switch flipped. And I don't know that I spent much time being sober over the next six years. So I don't think there was any conscious choice. It did something remarkable for me. And I loved the way it felt. And so I kept chasing that even when it didn't feel so good anymore.
0: In the Risk Without Regret podcast, you state that it was at this point you were 24 years old. You were living in the back of a van. And you had no idea what to do and had no idea how you even got there. Have you figured it out all these years later? Have you been able to put those pieces together to sort of figure out how you got in and how you got out?
1: No, not really. Um,
0: (laughs) If it were only that easy, right, Debbie? Well, I think,
1: you know, why we become addicts is a very complex question. And we could probably talk for hours and interview 50 people and not arrive at a satisfactory answer. I still say to this day that, two drinks was the best antidepressant I ever found. Mm. You know, Nothing works that well. But unfortunately, it goes way past that. So I don't know exactly how I got into that spot except that, you know, I think the fact for me is that I'm an alcoholic and I'm an addict. And when I start taking those things, I don't know what's going to happen. I pretty much burn my life down. What caused me to get out of it was I think first was simply – I had no other, like like you said, I had no other idea what to do. I was a heroin addict. I had a very expensive daily habit. I was living in the back of a van that wasn't even mine. I got arrested. I had a lot of jail time hanging over my head, and they took the van. I went to detox only because I just didn't know where else to go or what to do. I didn't go into it with the intention of getting clean, and then when I was there— they said, well, we think you need to go on to the 30-day program upstairs, and I originally said no. And then I went back to my room, and I just had one of those moments, you know, the cliche word is a moment of clarity, right? But I think I really realized, like, I'm going to die out there. And like you said, I was 50 pounds underweight. I had hepatitis C. I was in bad shape, and I just had enough of a, like, if I don't do something. So I went to the 30-day program, and they said, we think you should go do this. And as I walked that path a little bit, I started to believe that it could be different. And I think because I'd always heard an addict is, an you know, once an addict, always an addict kind of thing. I mean, I'd always heard that junkies don't get better that. And so and I had made a couple very uh, trifling attempts at getting better. They didn't work. So I think I was in a very hopeless place. And so I started seeing that it could be different. And so I think that thin sliver of hope is kind of what I, I went off of. And then I think, you know, there's, there's an advantage. You know, I was, I was brought up in a in a middle-class family. I was educated relatively well. I think as I started to emerge from that morass, it was easier for me than a lot of the people that I went through treatment with who, who hadn't even had the, that level of support. So I think once I got there, I was in a world that I understood a little bit. You work for a year and a
0: half to get sober. That is quite a lot of persistence, resilience, grit. What was that like for you?
1: I think it was alternately exhausting and terrifying and yet really thrilling too. I mean getting sober at that point for me was sort of one aha revelation after another for me about like, oh, wow, like that's how life works. Oh, that's how humans work. That's how people handle the things they don't know what to do. I mean it was just – I just felt like I was in this you know, very – you know, a, a very strong learning curve like, wow, I just never – Never knew all this stuff.
0: And it's so amazing when you're going through that kind of remarkable change, how intimate you become with other people that are going through that yes. as well. And how much you see about the spirit of the sort of human soul. <laughs>
1: yep. yep. <laughs> Sounds
0: really cliched, but I feel that it's, it's sort of humanness at its most profound
1: I agree, and I think that's why, you know, I got sober in, in 12-step programs. I think that's the main reason they work. There's lots of theories, and the 12-step programs have their own reasons they believe they work. But I think they work because of the people. I think it, it provides a community and a connection. And I think, you know, we talk about how hard smoking is to quit, right? I think part of the problem is that everybody <laughs> tries to do it by themselves.
0: Yeah, I've been there.
1: You know, <laughs> the, it's, it's, you're all on your own with it, whereas something like this, you you know— you can go to a meeting three times a day with you know people who are have felt the same way that you do, who care and want to help. I mean, that's a remarkable thing.
0: It gives you, I think, a lot of hope when you realize that you don't have to feel shame in front of other people with these same experiences.
1: Yes. I mean, I remember the first time I read the Narcotics Anonymous textbook, and I was still a few years from getting sober, but I read it and I just sobbed because I had never heard anybody put into words the mess that was in my brain. Mm. You know, to hear that another human felt that way and and it was just remarkable to me. And I think that's what those things give you is that they take the shame away and you recognize you're not the only one.
0: You got out of rehab – you started to put your life together. Mm -hmm. You didn't go to college, but ended up working in a small entrepreneurial software startup quite by accident. (laughs) I believe it was 1998, you got a job in in customer service at CompuServe. I haven't seen
1: that word in a long time. I know. I know. That's going way back. (laughs) What was it like to work at CompuServe in 1998? I thought it was amazing. I mean, I remember when I, when I went on the job interview. Again, my circumstances had been living in the back of a van, buying drugs in the projects. And I went in and it's just a normal office. Like most of us look at it today and are like, oh, God, it's Cubes. And but I was like, they give you free coffee? Like you can sit here. I mean, I was, I was, oh, I mean, I really like from where I had been in life, a starting entry level job in customer service was remarkable to me. And I love I mean actually I didn't love it. I didn't really like that job that much. I didn't like the being on the phone the whole time part. But what I recognized was like again, I sort of saw a path and I was like, if I work really hard here, they promote people out of here and that was exactly what I was so I'm gonna get promoted out of here. Yeah, it was nineteen ninety five. I mean the internet was brand new. Right. In the sense of normal humans using it. So it was a very exciting time.
0: You ended up getting a series of promotions and then the company merged with submitorder.com, and all of a sudden you and the company had $150 million in venture capital, and I read that you were not prepared or equipped or qualified for any of it.
1: Yeah. There was a little – actually, CompuServe <laughs> merged with AOL, and I got laid off. Oh, okay. And then I got a job at this very small engineering company, and then we merged with another company. But yes, in very short time, I went from – being a drug addict to sitting in silicon valley with venture capitalists who were talking about holidays within their castles and i was just where am i like how did this how did this happen and i was not qualified in any way shape or form for the work that i was doing
0: but yet you were doing it
1: yeah Yeah. I mean, I think that's what you learn from entrepreneurship. I mean, if you wait to be qualified, if you wait to be in the position where the job description says you can do it, you might be waiting a long time. And I learned that, yes, you can – at least I can jump into a variety of different situations and be successful.
0: You then went to CareWorks, which is part of Cardinal Health, and you were the project manager of $70 million web transformation projects and led all sorts of project management divisions and over 100 people, as well as then working at several other startups over the next few years. In 2008, you co-founded and became the CEO of Tipping Point Renewable Energy, which is a solar energy company, is it true that the idea of this company came to you when you were at a library and saw a book on clean energy? That's mostly it, yeah. I mean I <laughs> <laughs> really like I think I'm going to go to the library this afternoon and come up with a company idea.
1: yeah, well i um, I love the library. And so my favorite thing is to go browse the library, which makes for great to have a podcast where I go interview people because I just walk around the library. like That'd be a nice person to talk to. But, yeah, I was at the library. I saw a book on clean energy. I check out all kinds of books for whatever reason. I read that one and I went, this sounds like a really interesting opportunity. And so, yeah, I started a company doing that. And I think I now know don't start a company that you know nothing about <laughs> unless you have somebody who knows something about it with you. And so that was a, the learning curve on that was steeper than I thought.
0: Well, you were initially very successful. I understand that there was a twenty-year plan in Ohio at that time to move to clean energy. It made a lot of sense timing-wise mm-hmm. to do something like this. And then a number of key government policies changed in Ohio, and the business began to contract. Yep. Um, and you said this about the experience: I remember really vividly the day we were supposed to get news of our largest contract ever. It would have changed the face of the company in a really, really positive way. I was actually out on the job site when the phone rang, so I grabbed it. It was from the guy we were partnering with. I'm fully expecting the, we got the deal, but I got the, nope. The CEO pulled the plug at the last second. I remember standing there and just feeling sick. I wanted to run away. I just didn't want to do any of it anymore. The voices of doom in my head started back up. See, there's no way you're going to make it. Or why would you think you'd get a project like that? You're not big enough for that. You're not good enough for that. What I've learned over time is that in these moments, we've got a couple of choices. So my big question for you, Eric, is this. What are those choices? In that moment, what are the choices that you're faced with? And where did
1: you go next? I mean, I think... There's a few choices. I mean, the one is to continue believing the stories that I was telling myself. You know, the fact was we didn't get the contract. Everything else that you, had, that you just said that was going through my mind was my interpretation of what that meant.
0: Isn't that interesting? So it was your own sort of self-reflection that was underlining whatever it yeah. was that you felt this yeah. meant.
1: Yeah, and we, I think we all do that. I mean this is one of the things we explore on the show probably as much as anything else yeah. is the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening in our lives. And for most of us, they're not a real positive interpretation. And so I think that's one choice is to continue to believe that, to allow that to distract me. In the past, I think that when I would get down, I would just kind of stop for a while might be that that while might be a day, it might be a week, it might be. But I would just kind of, I would believe that like this is never going to work out. What's the point? And I would just kind of, you know, step away. And I think, at that point, I, for whatever reason, had enough resilience and understanding of the way things worked that I was able to deal with it. I mean, I I started by recognizing like how awful this feels. You know, we talk a lot on the show about positive thinking. I kind of tend to you know, jokingly, but not so jokingly, put positive thinking down a lot because the positive thinking approach would be like, every no is one step closer to a yes, oh, you know, shoot and, me now. Right, exactly. And everything's great and everything happens for a reason. And, you know, uh, yeah, right. and in that moment, <laughs> there was no way I was going to believe any of that. Right. Yeah. And so what I what I could do is go, ow, that really hurts. You know, that's really disappointing and, and allow myself to feel it, but then get back to work. And that was the thing for me was I acknowledge the emotions there, but then I also don't let that emotion or that mood drive the behavior that follows next.
0: You've said that you've trained yourself to some degree to recognize when you're telling yourself stories about what setbacks mean. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Um, There's a Buddhist parable that I love called the second arrow, the parable of the second arrow. In, in, In that parable... Um, The Buddha is talking to one of his students and he says, if you get shot by an arrow, does that hurt? And the student says, well, of course, yes, it hurts. And the Buddha says, well, if you get stuck by a second arrow, what's that like? He's like, well, it's even worse. And the Buddha made the analogy that life shoots the first arrow at us. I lost – I didn't get that contract that I really wanted. That was the first arrow. The second arrow was everything that I was doing, the I'm not good enough to do this, you know. You're a fool for thinking you'd get something like that. I'm hurting. I'm adding suffering to an existing pain. I'm sort of shooting the second arrow. And I think that's what we do. You know, The only fact in all that was I didn't get this contract. Everything else was completely a fabrication. And it takes a lot of observing our thoughts. It takes a lot of watching what our brain does to really be able to see that clearly. But an awful lot of what we are doing is making up some variation of a story on what something means. Um, If you're walking down the hall and somebody who you sort of know doesn't even look at you and walks by, right what happens well then we're going to try and interpret that event well they are um, that person's a jerk you know or <laughs> god what did i do did i did i say something to that person you know maybe they've got you know the the other truth is maybe they've got a stomach ache maybe they're in a fight with their spouse I mean, there's a thousand things but those are all speculation and the only thing i really know is i passed this person in the hall and they didn't look at me i don't think there's a way to turn that stuff off but at least to recognize it as it's an interpretation. What I'm doing here is is an interpretation, a story of what happened and what this means. And then – so I could – then we could go to the next level which is like, OK, the person didn't look at me because – nobody likes me. And then I'm into, well, nobody likes me because I'm this. And so you're I'm using
0: that. it as evidence of e- the globalization of how you feel about yourself. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So and, it's uh, the
1: com- ultimate confirmation. It, exactly. And, you know, we as humans, we have that confirmation bias, right? We're looking for things to confirm what we already believe.
0: You still have your business website up, But now you are consulting as opposed to running that solar company, the solar energy company. Your consulting work seems to be a way for you to be able to take risks, but also, as you've put it, not expose yourself to complete ruin. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that. So your consulting work is in many ways helping you pave the path to do your self-generated work, which is the work you're now doing with your podcast, which is really quite remarkable. And I'd like to talk about your podcast. So you started your podcast barely two years ago. Yep. Uh, you launched the When You Feed podcast with your best friend, Chris Forbes, mm-hmm. who also does the sound. You and Chris also create all the music for the show. Mm-hmm. What made you decide, of all things, to start a podcast in the first place?
1: Probably about as much thought as went into the solar energy company. Um, I, I, um, it, it's sort of a long story, but the solar energy company, the writing was on the wall for me that that wasn't going to work long term. And so I thought about creating an online solar energy course. I thought, well, all right, that would be the next thing I do. And when I did that, I exposed myself suddenly to the world of online marketing podcasts. And um, you know, I guess I knew what blogs were. But the idea suddenly started to take root. Like you could have a company that was just you. And I don't think I started it like this is going to be – a big company, or this is going to be a big thing, or I just, I came up with the idea to do it. And I just thought, this is something I want to do. You know, this sounds like something I would enjoy doing. And so I really kind of started it pretty modestly with, let's, you know, called Chris, I said, Hey, I've got this idea. Do you want to do it? We met for dinner the next day, agreed to do it and kind of started on it, you know, right after that.
0: You've stated that you think that the bad wolf is a real monster. And that's part of why you started the show. You felt that your default patterns were not to be aware and you were afraid of being in complete autopilot with those fears. Really? I mean, you seem so aware. It's hard for me to imagine that you would really be conflicted about that.
1: Well, I mean, first, when I referred to the uh, bad wolf as a real monster, I was, I was referring back to my addictive days. So that parable I heard relatively early in recovery. And in a situation like that, it, it really is this – feels like this epic battle between life and death. I wouldn't say that's how it feels today, um, although I know that's always kind of waiting, you know, if I, if I go that way. But I don't think it's a stretch that, that any of us fall into – being unaware or um, being on autopilot. I think that for whatever reason, as humans, that's really easy to do. It's really easy to live our lives in a less than conscious way because, A, we have a ton to do these days. There's just, it's just coming at us from all sides. And, B, there are countless ways to distract ourselves, to entertain ourselves. It's, it's a lot easier to just kind of go than it is to stop very regularly and say, what am I doing and why am I doing it? Like, what matters? And the scientists say that we all have sort of a um, baseline level of happiness or a set point. And for whatever reason, my set point just isn't as high as I would like it to be. Um, Again, I'm not in a place now where I'm likely to, you know, run off into the corner and put a needle in my arm. But I can get kind of, you know, my inner Eeyore can certainly come out and, and start making some noise. On your episode with Noah Levine, the
0: Buddhist teacher, author, and counselor, he states that it's actually quite normal to feed the bad wolf and that actually the norm that our body and our world and our society is based on, the greedy, hateful, delusional tendencies – And I was so depressed when I heard that. (laughs) It's like, can our natural state be one of bliss? (laughs) But yet there seems to be this battle that just exists, this epic battle, um, just to have a consistent state of contentment.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I'm quite maybe as um, pessimistic as Noah is in in that sentence. But I do think that it is a more and more as we seem to study neuroscience and and look at what's going on in our brain. It seems pretty clear that we are wired to survive. You know, that is our number one thing. And we're very, very good at that. I mean the, the you know, there's how many of us? Seven billion, eight billion of us? We've we've gone from a insignificant, you know, middle of the food chain animal like anything else to the far and away the dominant species. So we're pretty darn good at surviving. But I'm not sure those things that drive us to survival are necessarily the same things that lead to happiness and contentment. And now that for most of us, we've achieved a a point in life where survival is not really the issue, um, as we start to move up the hierarchy of needs, so to speak, I think we're tackling new problems that – as a whole, humans haven't had a whole lot of time to think about in the yeah, past. Yeah, I
0: don't think um, our ancestors 150, 200 years ago were really thinking quite a lot about happiness as much as we are now.
1: No, and and you might say that that potentially is, is problematic. I don't know, but I obviously spend a lot of time thinking about it for better or worse.
0: One of my favorite moments in one of your episodes was when you were interviewing Krista Tippett, the remarkable creator and host of the show On Being, wherein she talks about how she believes people become great and she states that they become great not in spite of their difficulties but because of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you believe that as well.
1: I do. I mean, I really think that is a true statement. I think that nobody likes difficulty and if I'm in the midst of a really difficult time and you, you tell me this is a great growth experience, I'm probably going to be pretty grouchy about that. Yeah,
0: I was wondering right. if
1: it felt more like, really? Is yeah. that
0: something we just tell ourselves to make sense of bad things?
1: I don't think it is something we tell ourselves to make sense out of bad things. But adversity can lead us to greatness. I don't think it always does or there would be an awful lot of great people in the world because there <laughs> right. is a lot of adversity. So I right. think it's really how do you handle it and transform it? The the example for me is the addiction piece, right? Addiction stopped being something that I regretted, that I looked back on in a really negative way, when I was able to use the fact that I had been through that to do some good in the world. That transformed it. Helps it. you
0: make sense of your life. Yeah, it yeah.
1: transformed it from this awful thing into something that was pretty is is pretty powerful. And so that's the sort of thing I think we're talking about there. Okay.
0: Another wonderful episode of The One You Feed is with author and business consultant Todd Henry, where you talk at length about one of my favorite topics, consumption. And you talk about how if you are not conscious of it, 95% of life is consuming, 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 and maybe 5% is thinking about it and understanding it. It's easy to fall into the delusion that there is something out there that we just haven't gotten yet, that when we get it, it will make (laughs) all the difference. Eric, why do you think we keep searching for redemption through consumption?
1: Well, I think we want an easy answer. You know, consumption is easy. It, it's much easier. It's a drug too, in yeah. many ways. Oh yeah, I mean, just sit and if all you have to do is sit and read something, or sit and watch TV, or sit and listen to something, it takes very little effort. So I think that's one reason that that we do it. I don't think we recognize that hearing something is not the same as learning and applying something. I guess I would say it's very. You know, I could I could read thirty articles today about how to be more productive. But if I don't take any of those things and actually implement them into a system I use, I'm not going to be any more productive tomorrow. And I think that's what the vast majority of us do. The Internet is designed to do that. It's designed to read this and the web pages are designed so that as soon as you're done reading that, you click the next thing and you click the next thing. And there's all sorts of things all around it to click. And Netflix is designed and TV shows are designed so that when the one ends, you click the next. I mean, there's a lot of time and effort spent on all those things. It's like a John
0: Grissom novel.
1: (laughs) Exactly. There's a lot of time and energy spent so that you don't stop and think about what you just saw or Mm read or heard. You go to the next. What Todd Henry said was that if you were to change your ratio and say you spend an hour reading, if you were to spend 30 minutes after that thinking about what you read, seeing if it applies in your life, thinking of how to apply it, that your life would change very, very quickly. And I think that's a true statement.
0: I do too. You do a lot of additional types of episodes of The One You Feed in addition to your several hundred interview episodes you also create mini-episodes wherein you talk about a specific topic on your own. Reminds me a little bit of the one, I don't know if you remember the wonderful show called Northern Exposure, mm-hmm. where John Corbin was a DJ, mm-hmm. and he would spend time just ruminating and talking about his view of the world. And it was my favorite part of the show, and those are my favorite episodes of oh. yours. Well, thank you. I just love listening to you talk about a topic, and they're short, and they're really poignant, and they always teach me something. And I'd like to use our remaining time together to talk about some of these as they're fascinating and just as good if, as I said, I I like them as much um, as the interview episodes. In your episode titled Decision Fatigue and Routines, you talk about a cognitive budget. I love that. Can you explain what that is and how you cultivate a cognitive
1: budget? Well, I think the idea of decision fatigue has been somewhat, you know, widely spread at this point. But the basic idea is that as you make more decisions, you become more tired and you become less able to make decisions. And so that's the decision fatigue piece. And so, you know, looking at it the other way is you've got a cognitive budget, you've got a certain amount of energy that your brain has to do things. And so spending that cognitive budget wisely is helpful. So the more decisions that I make as the day goes on, then I'm depleting that cognitive budget. And if from the minute I get up, I'm having to figure out the example I use a lot is not having a routine. Like if I from the minute I get up, if I have to figure out before I'm even out of bed, when am I going to get out of bed? What am I going to do when I get out of bed? What am I going to eat for breakfast? Am I going to go to the gym or not? If I go to the gym, am I going to run or am I going to lift weights? Before I've <laughs> even done much of anything, I've made a lot of decisions. And so I, my cognitive budget is spent. And and I'm then less able to apply that cognitive budget to to making big, important decisions or thinking creatively or doing those kind of things. So that's where routines can be really helpful because – there's no real decision to make. My when I'm at home, my morning is. It's I just know what happens. You know, I get up, I do this, I do that, I go, I meditate, I go to the gym. I mean, it's it's all sort of scripted out. And I'm not a proponent of like we have to script every minute of our lives so that you know we always know what we're doing at every minute. But I sounds
0: kind of nice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> in some ways, yeah.
1: I often find the people who have the hardest time. Doing things are the people who have the least to do because there's just so much open space. There's there's this constant decision has to be made about what to do with your time that it's exhausting.
0: In another episode on comparison and envy, you state in relation to our comparing ourselves to others, Teddy Roosevelt said comparison is the thief of joy. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins in Dante's Inferno. The envious have their eyes sewn shut. And you have a wonderful description of what these emotions actually do to us. And I'd like to share it here. You state that the problem with comparison and envy is that it's one of those things that make us feel bad about ourselves and another person simultaneously. Do you feel like being in the world that we live in now with Instagram likes and Facebook updates that we're now being forced to compare ourselves to others just in an effort to keep up?
1: I don't think we're being forced. I mean, those are choices, but I think that the opportunities to compare ourselves to others are increasing greatly. So, you certainly have the opportunity to do it a lot more than we used to, and it's easier to do, but I don't I don't know that we're forced. It just
0: seems to me that especially young people are getting a lot of their sense of self-worth by how popular they are on these types mm-hmm. of sites that give you really quantifiable evidence <laughs> of your likability or your popularity in ways that we didn't have to contend with when we were growing up and we were that age. I, I, I know that this new generation Z, as they're calling the generation mm-hmm. behind the millennials are, are being called Generation D. D stands for depression because of mm. how comparative everything is. Oh, I got this many likes and I have this many friends. Why do we have to compare in this way? I think it's something about the human condition. Yeah.
1: I, I was going to say I think it's endemic in us to some degree to do some comparison. But the, the sooner we can learn and the more we can learn not to do it, the far happier we are. And it is – it's hard. I mean – The how many followers, the, you know, how many likes, the one more, the one more, I think is part of a human condition thing. It shows up in different ways, in different generations, in different technology, but there is a sort of consistent thing to human nature that is sort of, I'll be happy when. You know, I think that is the to me one of the most fundamental things i see that as humans makes us unhappy i'll be happy when sometime in the future if this happens yes yeah, your when can be anything right i'll be happy if i get 50 likes well if you get 50 then you want 60 right. and if you get 60 then you want 70 hedonistic treadmill yep and boy i spent a lot of life really bought into that notion i talked with um Russell Simmons earlier today incredibly accomplished founder of Def Jam Records yeah. Def and Jam of and Versace right yeah. and we were talking about how very rich and successful people find the problem that a lot of us never get to which is they get everything they thought they wanted and they go what this isn't it
0: the last question i want to ask you is about a new initiative you're now conducting coaching though i know you hate the word coaching <laughs> Um, and you're working with a few select people on feeding their good wolf and helping them through a lot of these issues.
1: What made you decide to do this? I had been asked by a couple of listeners, and I had sort of thought, well, no, and then I got encouragement from someone to try it. Um, why not just try it? And so I did and instantly realized that um, I had essentially been doing it for a long time. I mean – Having been in recovery as long as I was, in recovery, there's a concept of a sponsor. And a sponsor is essentially a coach. And I realized, wow, I've done this for 20 years. And so then I realized that I was pretty good at it. And I had a lot of success with the people I worked with in the beginning and, and really enjoyed it. So that was kind of what led me to do it. And then the how well it went has led me to keep doing it.
0: So if people like what they hear on your show but have trouble putting it into action, they can actually work with you directly mm-hmm. to yep. do that. yep. Sounds like something I should sign up for, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) Eric Zimmer, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: You can find out more about Eric Zimmer on his website, whenyoufeed.net, or you can hear the One You Feed in the iTunes store. This year, we're celebrating the 11th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we could do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.